Cops are A-types. Negotiators are A-types of the A-types. We, we, we're the people, us and the SWAT guys, are the people that they call when the police get in trouble. When the police get in trouble, they call us. I want to connect the listeners to the best of the best. Welcome to the Evolve Broker Podcast. I am your host, Pat Costello, the co-founder and principal at Evolve MGA. Our mission for the podcast is to bring the insurance industry the best of the best in work and in life. We have to have difficult conversations that require negotiation difficult conversations with our coworkers, partners, vendors, employees, and even spouses to be more effective in these conversations. We thought, who would be better to learn from than the former commander of the hostage negotiation team in Washington, D.C.? My guest today is a guy named Derek Gaunt. Derek spent 29 years in law enforcement and is considered a hostage negotiation and incident command subject matter expert. He is an author and regularly speaks at hostage negotiations and SWAT conferences across the country. He now specializes in instructing companies on how to apply hostage negotiation practices and principles to the business world. Derek and I discussed his career, negotiation strategies and tactics, the ideal difficult conversation outline, the best way to say no, and how to get people to truly make a commitment. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Prime Insurance. Prime Insurance thinks outside the limitations of standard insurance companies by providing innovative solutions for specialty risks. Prime is a proud leader in excess and surplus lines insurance, providing coverage for many who would otherwise be forced to go uninsured or self-insure their risk. Email info at primeis.com to start working with Prime today. Without further ado, here's Derek. Derek. Welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast. Thank you for the invite, Pat. It's a pleasure for me to be here with you today. How did you end up becoming a hostage negotiator? Ah, uh, how did I end up becoming a hostage negotiator? I, um, I started, interestingly enough, I started my law enforcement career in the late 1980s. And what was going on in America in the late 1980s was a scourge of, of uh, crack cocaine in the inner cities. And... As a result, law enforcement in general took a, a more aggressive stance because of the associated violence that went along with that drug trade. And so I didn't spend a lot of time in a patrol car. I was uh, shortly uh, plucked out of the patrol division and placed into a uh, street level narcotics unit. And um, narcotics at the time had, was 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 the nexus to other crimes. And so the people that we frequently arrested uh, for street level narcotics violations often had information about other crimes, uh, the least of which was who, whoever they were getting their, their drugs from, but often it meant them giving up information as to where stolen property was being sold, where we could find stolen cars, where we could find guns that were used in crimes of, of violence. So, um, it wasn't long before I realized that I could say specific things in a specific manner to elicit specific responses from people who were otherwise un uninclined to provide that information to law enforcement. I thought that that was the coolest thing in the world. And I knew that there was something more 
uh, again, because I was it was street level narcotics. So it was as far as investigations were concerned, we were bottom feeders. Mm -hmm. And so the next level up was uh, for me to become a detective in the criminal investigation section, which I did. And now my entire job surrounded me being able to interact with people on a personal level to provide me information that I needed to solve uh, crimes. And I was continually amazed at if I was able to establish rapport with them and some level of trust, the amount of information that ordinarily non-cooperative individuals were likely to give. And so the psychology of being able to interview and interrogate people to give up information against their interest intrigued me. And I thought that there had to be something more. So I started to immerse myself in interview and interrogation and the psychology behind it. And I found that it was similar to what they were doing as hostage negotiators. And I thought, well, that's the obvious next level for me. And so in 1997, when the opportunity presented itself, I competed for one of five spots on my hostage negotiations team. And the rest, as they say, is history. I never look back. To give the audience an idea of how intense your job was as a hostage negotiator, can you walk us through a particular hostage uh, negotiation situation that you had to deal with? Well, uh, you never forget your first, right? So mm -hmm. my, my, my first one um, stands out for a variety of reasons. Um, the situation itself was a, a person who was threatening to jump from a bridge. That's the 30,000 foot view. Uh, but the backstory behind how he wound up on that bridge is, is just as complicated and, and interesting as him actually being on the bridge. This individual we had, for lack of a better term, been chasing around for about three days. Uh, he had violated a protective order forbidding him from coming in contact with his estranged wife. Um, and he was it was a cat and mouse game. And it was a game to him because he was, you know, this was back in the day when there were still payphones around. And so he was bouncing around from different payphone to payphone in Washington, D.C., uh, taunting us from across the, the Potomac River. And he ultimately wound up walking back to Virginia and going up on the bridge over the Potomac River. Uh, and he threatened to, to jump. And so I spent seven hours in early November on a bridge um, in DC where it was freezing cold and um, attempted to uh, use my communication skills to influence him into coming down. And, and I was, it, it, it was interesting for me because I was partially successful. And when I say partially successful, he did eventually jump after he was, um, he was shot in the, in the hindquarters with a less lethal projectile. And that was enough to motivate him to, to jump. But it was a partial success because I got him away from the center portion of the span, which was the highest portion of the span. And so when he jumped, he didn't jump from the same height that he originally threatened to jump from. He jumped from a height uh, that was far lower. Uh, there was a far more there was less water, more silt in the bottom. And so his, his fall was broken by the water and the silt and, and they were able to, to rescue him uh, at that point. But it was a challenge for us because this guy was what we call in the business a Swami. And a Swami is a suicide with other motivation. This is a person who's engaging in suicidal behavior for purposes other than the suicide. 
It's a manipulative move. This is this is your classic look at what you made me do type of person. And he was laying it all at the feet of his estranged um, wife. Um, and the the overtures that he was making was was more to send a message to her than it was to actually kill himself, although he did actually jump. Wow. So you were in direct contact with him as he was trying to figure out what he was going to do in his in his next steps. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for seven hours, we were obviously, uh, it's not the, the, the optimum position to be in. We were voice to voice, uh, because obviously I'm not going to throw him a phone while he's up on a bridge. Uh, so we, so we were, we were face to face, voice to voice for, for all of those, all of those seven hours. And, um, based on the totality of the circumstances, it was clear that he was using, uh, the situation to try to manipulate his environment with his, um, with his estranged wife. The problem with a Swami, what makes them so challenging is while they're doing it for manipulative purposes, once they figure out or come to the realization that the game is up, that's when they hold the Trump card and they, and they say, Oh yeah, well watch this. And that's when they usually, usually go over. So my point is, even though there were indications that he was a suicide with other motivations, it did not, um, absolve us from handling it as if it was a legit attempt. And so we, we used all of the suicide intervention techniques that we've learned in order to coax him back towards um, Virginia, back towards my jurisdiction, back toward the, where the, the height of the bridge wasn't as uh, great. Got it. I actually think that's a perfect transition into some of the strategies and tactics in your book, Ego, authority, failure. Some of these tactics honestly seem like Jedi mind tricks. And it was very cool to learn about how you use these in real life situations. But a few specific ones that I'd love to go through are labeling, mirroring, and silence. And I'm hoping we can start with labeling. What yeah. is labeling and how is it best applied to a conversation? Labeling is simply your recognition of a driving force or a dynamic or a, a motivation. This is data that you're getting from your counterpart that you're repackaging and you're giving right back to him or her. The label structure is it looks like, it seems like, it sounds like that in the general sense, you'll be fine structuring your label just like that. If you want to get more or look or appear more engaged, you can replace the it with you. You look, you seem, you sound. And this is you tentatively identifying what's going on with the other person based on the data that they give you. This is not a judgment call on your part. Uh, you have a safety net. There is wiggle room because the desire to correct is irresistible. So if I say, Pat, you seem like you're, you're angry today and you go, I'm not angry, I'm frustrated. My, my, my recourse is just to respond by saying, I didn't say you were, I said, you sounded mm. angry. So is how the, is what I'm hearing wrong? Is the primary goal of labeling to gain more information? That's not the primary goal. That is a byproduct. Okay. The primary goal is to let the other side know that you understand what's going on from their perspective. This is your first, this is your first stab, your first attempt at tactical empathy. Everybody wants someone else to understand what their environment is like, what, what press pressures and stresses are they under? 
what is their frame of reference? All of us have an innate desire for somebody else to understand that. And this is your attempt at fulfilling that desire. Can you describe why it's more powerful to label a negative than a positive? Sure. Um, Labeling a negative diffuses the negative. Why is it important to diffuse the negative? Because if there's a negative dynamic or emotion at play in a difficult conversation, people are threatened. When people are threatened, they get defensive. When they get defensive, there are two things that we default to doing. We, we fight or we run. You know, that's, it's been going on for thousands of years. Why, why do we go after the negatives as, as um, fervently as we do? It's because when those negative emotions and dynamics are bouncing around in your counterpart's head, they're not as smart as they otherwise could be. And so you pushing towards um, your, your goal or you trying to infuse logic into the conversation is, is, um, is going to fail because when emotions are high, rational thinking is low. When that amygdala fires up, it, it, uh, it obscures, it impedes what's supposed to be going on in the prefrontal cortex. And as long as you allow those negatives to persist, your counterpart, plain and simple, is just, they're just not as smart as they could be. They're actually dumber. Mm. Your brain works up to 31% better when you're in a positive state. So what does that mean for you in a difficult conversation? You need to work on putting the other side in a positive state as soon as you can in order to make them a little bit cognitively more nimble so that they can understand um, where you're going, mm-hmm. why you're going there, and, and, and ultimately whatever your goal and objective is. So an example of a negative label would be like, it's going to seem like I'm being a jerk. Is there any other examples of a, of a negative label that you would use? Uh, well, actually, that's a negative preemptive label. Okay. Which which we call the accusations audit. The accusations audit is 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 all for all intents and purposes. It is a label of a di- dynamic or an emotion that has not been verbalized yet by your counterpart. It is uh, a label, uh, a preemptive label of something that they may experience based on what you're going to tell them next. So the three, the three places within a difficult conversation where we put these preemptive labels are at the beginning, anytime we make an ask or anytime we're going to share news with the other side that they may not want to hear. And so the one that you just threw out, it's probably going to seem like I'm being a jerk. Mm -hmm. Is you setting them up to hear something that's going to make you sound like a jerk. And so it, it softens the blow. It gives them a chance to to um, to brace themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know you, you're probably going to think that I'm being naive. You may even think that this is a chance for me to impose my will. Mm. You may even believe that I'm being inflexible and greedy. Mm. And in between each one of those, you talked about a little bit about it earlier. Dynamic silence in between each one of those because. When you throw out, you know, when you throw out, it's probably going to seem like I'm being a jerk and then you just fall silent. What have you done with your counterpart? You've taken them to the far end of the fear spectrum. They have no idea what you're going to say next. Mm -hmm. 
and their mind is racing. Okay, here it comes. Here it comes. He's getting ready to hit me with something that's not going to sit well with me. And then, and then, and then you follow that on with, you know, whatever other preemptive labels that you have set up to the point where they're like, all right, come on, get to it, get to it. I'm ready for it. So then when you ultimately tell them what it is that they may not have wanted to hear, or when you ultimately tell them what your ask is, it pales in comparison to what they were thinking about. And it's a relief for them to acquiesce to whatever it is that you're asking or saying. Dynamic silence is a wild concept. Yep. And I, I think a lot of people don't use it effectively in general because it makes the person who's using it uncomfortable, but I don't think they realize how uncomfortable it's making the other person. In your book, you mentioned like the longest you've ever seen silence go is like nine seconds. Right. Is that right? Can you expand on that? Right. The average is two to three. Okay. If you've got somebody who, where you intentionally create a void in the conversation, which is what dynamic silence is, you're intentionally creating the void in the conversation to your point to produce that discomfort on the other side so that they jump in and fill it with more information. The average time is two to three seconds. How do we know? I've counted. That's how I know I'm doing it deliberately. Mm -hmm. When I shut my mouth and mentally I start to count one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000. Once you get to eight or nine, if they still have not broken the silence, you have got a problem on your hands. You've got an issue. There's something that you failed to be sensitive to that's bugging the other side. And so I follow on when I get to 10 seconds with another label, that label that sounds exactly like what I just said. It seems like it's worse than I thought. Mm -hmm. It's, it seems like I'm failing to be sensitive to something that's really important to you. And that usually is enough to prompt them to tell me what I've missed. If we're talking about the ideal difficult conversation outline, a big portion of the beginning of that conversation is those um, accusation audits that we mentioned mm -hmm. briefly. Mm -hmm. And when I was going through, it sounds like it's really... It's bringing up any negativity bias um, before you bring up the objective or where you'd like mm -hmm. to go with the conversation. So that negativity bias isn't bouncing around in their heads throughout the conversation. Correct. What I was thinking about when I was, when I was uh, reading this was the movie Eight Mile with Eminem mm -hmm. and like his final rap battle. You know, he brings up all the negative things that they're going to say about him before yeah. anyone else can. Right, right. Right. That's right. Yeah. So and I, it, and, and it takes, it takes, a, it, what it does is you are taking permission and authority away from the other side for using those negatives against you during the course of the conversation. You mm -hmm. are taking them completely off of the table. And that's, and that's what we, that's what we want to do. The other mm -hmm. important thing that you should remember about the accusations audit is how fearless you have to be to do it. Because you're, in essence, taking a negative light and you're pointing it back at yourself. And that is a selfless act because who, who wants to do that? So immediately when you start doing that, they're thinking to themselves, why, why is Pat doing that? How does he know that that's what I'm thinking? And for them, there's no clearer demonstration that you're trying to see the world from their perspective than when you start to articulate stuff that they have not even spoken yet. It's huge. I can't tell you, you know, if, if, if I'm in Vegas 
And I got to place money on which one of the skills or strategies that we espouse is the most potent. It would be the accusations audit because it just, it, it, it changes the dynamics almost immediately because you're taking authority and permission away from them from using the in the conversation. And it's the first step in demonstrating tactical empathy. It's super applicable to sales as well, because so in so many of our sales situations, we're trying to find the pain. We're trying to figure out what the issue is so we can solve it. Another big element that I thought applied to our sales process, at least, is the concept of mirroring. Can you break down what mirroring is? Mirroring is probably the easiest, uh, probably the easiest skill that we have, and that is just repeating back the last one to three-ish words that the other side spoke. Valuable for several reasons. Number one, their exact words coming out of your mouth is music to their ears. Number two, it takes the feeling of interrogation away from the conversation. When I mirror, when you tell me uh, she doesn't listen to me anymore and it makes you angry or I'm sorry, you say she doesn't listen to me anymore and it makes me angry. My mirror to that is going to be in one of two directions. Upwards, makes you angry? Indicating, give me more. Please go on. Or it goes down. I will will inflect downward and I will say, makes you angry. Hmm. Demonstrating an understanding without saying, I understand, which without saying I get it. Mm -hmm. And so there's probably not a better way to demonstrate that you're tuned in, in the moment to the conversation, because you're giving verbatim the last three words that were just spoken. And it's also great when you are in overload, when you're, you've got sensory overload and you're trying to contemplate several things and they're still talking, you lose your place in the conversation. You can't think of what else to say. You usually, without a lot of mental, um, without a lot of brain power, can remember the last three words that they just said. It's a great listening and attending technique. Mm-hmm. I saw your partner, Chris Voss, talk yeah. about a story with mirroring where, you know, it was about a guy who was at some big social event, maybe it was a wedding and he was using mirroring the entire time. Johnny Mirrors. <laughs> it's Johnny Mirrors, huh? Yeah, that's, his, that, that's what they nicknamed him, Johnny Mirrors. Yeah. And that's it, all he did the entire night was go around mirroring people. Uh-huh. And, and the people that he encountered uh, came up to his wife and thought that he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Why have you not brought him out before? He's such a great guy. Uh-huh. He, he, he listens. He's a great conversationalist. And all this guy was doing was repeating back the last one to three words that people were saying. And this goes back to what I spoke about earlier, that drive, that innate drive that we all have to be understood by somebody else. And when you do that, it's such it's such a foreign concept that when somebody else hears it, they eat it up. Hmm. And just by mirroring the last one to three words, they think to themselves, I've got somebody who's finally listening to me and they continue to vomit information and they've done most of the talking, but they call him the best conversationalist of the party. And all he does is repeat back the last one to three words. You know, Derek, I got to tell you a funny story. I, so I read your book and I was thinking about this and I was getting my haircut 
and I realized that my barber was mirroring me 99% of our conversation. Her English isn't great, um, but literally it was, you know, the last one to five words that I said. And I just, I was like, I am literally just divulging all this information. I don't know. Yeah. She, she might not actually be even listening. Yeah. It was super funny. Um, yeah. And, and, and neurologically you're getting hits of dopamine and oxytocin, small doses, but that's why you keep going because it feels so good. You can't put your finger on it, mm. but when somebody starts to really label you or use mirrors with you, you could get that hit of dopamine and you can't help yourself. Well, if they like that, they're going to love this and you just keep going. Yeah. So Derek, we talked about the ideal difficult conversation outline. So from a work standpoint, maybe you have a tough conversation coming up with one of your direct reports. Maybe there's some disagreement that you're dealing with. Can you walk through how someone should think about that outline? I know we mentioned accusation audits, but is there anything else that you would include in that outline? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's mindset. You got time to prep for this difficult conversation. Take the time to prep. You have the time, take the time. Preparation starts with your mindset. You go into the difficult conversation. You need to go in assuming that you have something to learn. There's something going on with your direct report that you have no clue about. And you have to keep an open mind. You have to be curious. You have to assume that you don't know everything. The second thing, as far as mindset is concerned, is you need to accept the fact that you're going to get attacked. Your direct report at some point during the conversation is going to attack you. It is not going to make sense to you. It's going to catch you off guard. It's going to come out of left field. Accept it and then figure out what you're going to do with it in the moment. What you're going to do with it in the moment is, well, first and foremost, stay in the moment because the attack is occurring for one of three reasons. You fail to appreciate the pressure that they're under. Second reason is there's something else going on with them. They've been trying to, quote, tell you about it for a while, and you haven't picked up on the cues. It's been manifested in their behavior, but their behavior, there's something else that's driving the behavior, and you've failed to recognize that. The third reason that you might get attacked during the conversation is it's a manipulative ploy. If I attack you as your subordinate, because you're bringing me into the office because of some kind of performance um, deficiency. My mechanism may be just to lash out at you and get you to back off of it, to try to manipulate you into changing your mind. But regardless of which of those three it is, it's important for you to stay in the moment to figure it out. Ignoring it is not gonna make it go away. Trying to explain it away is not gonna make it go away. Pretending it's not there is not going to make it go away. The only way it goes away is if you be courageous enough to stay in the moment and figure out where is this coming from. And when you get attacked, uh -huh. sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but when you get yeah. attacked, Derek, that's when you want to use iMessages, right? 
Not necessarily, not necessarily. Because again, the attack is a message. They're sending you a, a, a message. And so I'm not going to use an iMessage after the first attack. I'm probably not going to do use an iMessage after the second attack. The third or subsequent attack, that's when I may throw out an iMessage because if I've done my job on the first two attacks, there shouldn't be a reason for a third attack unless it's manipulation. And the manipulation is counterproductive behavior. Counterproductive behavior left unaddressed mm. diminishes your ability to influence. And so it's at that point. The iMessage is always for persistent counterproductive behavior. Not the first time you encounter it, but persistent counterproductive behavior. So when I get attacked, the first thing I'm going to do is apologize because obviously something that I just said set them off, set, offended them. I'm going to apologize. And then I'm going to say, it sounds like blank is important to you. And I'm, I failed to realize that. And I'm just going to let that sit to try to figure out, is this a cry for help? Are they under tremendous pressure? Are they trying to manipulate me? And if I if I determine they're trying to manipulate me, then to your point, that's where the iMessage comes in. Mm -hmm. And the iMessage is when you say X, Y, and Z, I feel this way, mm -hmm. right? Because, and then because, the result. When you, I feel because, that's the basic structure. You know, it's so funny that um, that's a, a strategy because I just spoke with two Stanford professors that teach um, one of the most famous Stanford courses. They call it the Touchy Feely How to Build Exceptional Relationships course. And a huge tenet of the program is vulnerability and talking about your true feelings, saying, I feel sad, I feel excited, I, as opposed to saying, I feel like you are doing X, Y, and Z, or I feel that you are, you know, going in this direction where you're kind of putting your opinion on someone else. I, I just found it so interesting that, um, you know, that was something that was taught in that Stanford course. And this is something that's actually used in high pressure, intense hostage negotiation situations. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Using the I message, first of all, it's very it's an assertive move, so it should be used cautiously because you are going to you're 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 in essence taking your index finger and you're poking them in the chest and telling them knock it off. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to continue to be subjected to whatever it is that you're doing. So it's a very it's a very assertive move. So you have to pick and choose your spots. This is not something that you want to throw out early in the conversation. There are people that do. But understand that if you do, you're going to spike, uh, uh, you're going to introduce a negative response on the part of your counterpart. And the only time that we want to do that is when we want them to take a stand back and let them know that we're not going to continue to be victimized by whatever it is that they're doing or saying. Okay. So when we're going through the outline, we have mindset, we have uh, the summary, we have the accusation audits. Mm -hmm. As you start to get to your objective or uh, maybe your proposal, there was one line that you mentioned in the book that I'm curious about. And as you're bringing up your objective, you start out by saying, this is going to sound horrible. Can you tell us why that should be said? And if there's a particular tone it should be brought up, 
I found that very unique in the whole process leading up to the objective. It's, it's, it's kind of an accusations audit. Mm. Now the accusations audit is you want to know what the other side is thinking. Think to yourself, what would I be thinking if I were them? That's a great place to start. If I know that I'm probably going to say something that they're not going to want to hear, I'm probably just going to set it up. This is going to sound horrible. You're going to want to reach through the phone and stab me in the eye with a pen. And they're going, holy crap, where is it? Where is this going? Mm-hmm. And they're thinking the worst. And so, and then back to what I said earlier, ultimately when I give them whatever it is that I was going to give them, it's, it's usually a relief because it's not as bad as they thought, but this is going to sound horrible is a great way to set up delivering any message that they're not going to want to hear. You want to get your, your, your eight-year-old to finish their green beans before getting up from the table. And you Mm -hmm. simply look at that kid and you say, this is probably not something you're going to want to hear. (laughs) And you're going to think that dad is just being a bonehead and you let that sit. And then you ask him how bad of a position would I put you in if I asked you to finish your vegetables? And because you took the time to set it up, even the eight-year-old goes, ah, it's not a big deal. I can do that. Mm because it's far less than what they were anticipating. And so in terms of the accusations audit, there are three places to set it up. As I mentioned at the beginning, before an ask, before bad news and play with it. You know, it doesn't have to be, it's going to sound horrible. You know, the, the, um, you want to going to reach through the phone and stab me in the eye with a pen, play with it a little bit. My, my wife's favorite accusations audit. This is going to catch you like a, like a punch in the gut. Mm. And um, so going back to the structure, summary, accusations, audit, before you get to your goal and objective, let's figure out what they're thinking first. The first 75, 80% of every difficult conversation where you have an ultimate goal and objective shouldn't be about that goal or objective. You should not be pitching that in the first 75, 80% of the conversation should be all about the other side. Hmm. So after your summary, after your accusations, audit, I usually try to hit them with a vision question. If you're talking about the scenario where you're talking with a direct report, it seems like you have a vision on how well or how poorly you've been doing this quarter. And then I follow it with a no oriented question. Would you be against walking me through that vision? And let's hear what they have to say. Again, this is a, this is a, This is a demonstration of tactical empathy and the importance of tactical empathy is that it encourages reciprocity. They're far more likely to be collaborative with you because you first gave them a chance to speak their mind. And so I always ask the vision question right after the accusations audit. Got it. How do you gain the upper hand in the conversation using calibrated questions? Uh, calibrated questions, it's, it's, they're, they're questions for effect. That's what makes them calibrated. And, and, and we, we frame the scope of the discussion based on the type of calibrated question, but we're giving the impression that they have the latitude to answer however they see fit. And so that's, 
that's the illusion of control that we're giving them while we maintain the upper hand. And so we're, we're setting parameters and we're putting them in a box by using calibrated questions. And the interesting thing about calibrated questions is as they have evolved over the years, we're using them less and less to gather information. And we're using them more and more to shape thinking, to help problem solve, to help them figure out solutions themselves, similar to the Socratic method. So we're moving away from what and how questions to gather information and using those to shape people's thinking. Now, what we're using actually now to gather information is the asking label, where we're just inflecting upwards on a label and turning it into a question. Mm. And that removes the feeling of interrogation because there's a third of the population that does not like direct questions. 33% of the population cannot stand to be asked direct questions. You want to shut them down, start asking them what and how questions and, and they'll, they'll fold up like a, like a wilted flower. Those questions typically um, elicit a response that a yes or a no or a one word answer, right? Any questions. Any questions. But okay. what's particularly problematic are your one word, uh, your closed ended questions, your ver especially the verb led questions. Can you, is this, you know, th those are particularly problematic. Um, again, full third of the population, I, I, I'm an analyst, right? I'm in that third of the population that hates direct questions. Mm -hmm. And so if you ask me, if you're silly enough to ask me a closed ended question, that's what you're going to get. Mm. You know, if you say, Derek, is, is, is this a viable solution? My response is either going to be yes or no with nothing, no, no explanation. I'm not going to expound on it. You're going to get exactly yes or no to a yes or no question because I don't like, I don't like yes or no questions. I don't like questions in general. So those calibrated questions, they typically start with what and how, mm -hmm. and they are the, they're open-ended, so they, it, there's less ego in those questions because you truly are looking for collaboration from the other person, gaining more information, more ability to persuade. I'm looking for more information, more ability to persuade. I'm also yeah. looking at their thought process. You know, how much have they really given thought to whatever the issue is? How much thought have they given to execution and implementation. If, if, if the purpose of the conversation is to get an agreement to do X, how far down the line have they thought about what X is going to look like next week, next month, next year? And so the what and how questions are particularly powerful for determining how much buy-in you have from the person that you're dealing with. The more they can expound in a what and how question, the more solid the agreement is going to be, the more solid the execution is going to be. If they can't tell you what it's going to look like in two weeks, if they can't tell you what it's going to look like if they're off track and how to, to get it back on track, if they can't tell you how they're going to articulate the people that they have to influence to make this happen, there, there's a disconnect. And you should not break that interaction until you get answers to those questions. Can you talk about why we need to be really careful about using questions that start with why? 
Um, look, in every in every language on the planet, there is a version of the word why. In every language on the planet, it makes people defensive. When you ask someone a why question, you're implying superiority immediately. You're asking them a question and you're telling them there is a correct answer and you don't have it. You're forcing them to explain. And if I'm forced to explain, that means you think I'm missing the boat, which is an attack on on my intellect. I'm being attacked. I get defensive. I get defensive. My amygdala fires up and go back to what we talked about earlier in the conversation. I now am not as smart as I otherwise would be because I'm, I'm, I'm emotional because you're attacking me with a why question. So why, you know, if I were to say, you know, Pat, why, why don't you settle on that logo for, for the, you know, evolved broker? Yeah. Immediately you're going to think, well, what's wrong with my, what's wrong with the logo? I thought that was cool. <laughs> it took me, you know, it took me two weeks to come up with that logo. Uh-huh. And, and you may not say that, but that's what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. And so automatically you're in a defensive mode and, and your job in these difficult conversations is to mitigate the negative, not to introduce them. And that's what why does mm. it introduces negatives. It's accusatory. It is. It is. Yeah. It implies that there is a right answer, but you don't have it. And so then that puts, as I mentioned, that puts, if I ask you why that puts you in an inferior or subordinate role to me. Mm-hmm. Now I have all the answers and now I'm just waiting for an opportunity to explain them to you. Mm-hmm. And that's what sets people on edge. That's what makes people defensive when it comes to the question or the word why. There is no doubt that I personally, and I think a lot of us could use a little bit more thought about how we're asking questions, what questions we're asking and how we prepare for um, difficult conversations and general conversations. Um, to be more persuasive. A lot of times as a leader, as a manager, or as someone who has to make decisions for the betterment of the company, you have to say no to an employee that believes that they are in the right, that they should be getting a yes. What is the best way to say no that leaves a quality impression on that employee that's asking the question? Yeah, you, you let it out a little at a time, mm. number one. Number two, you 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 preface your no, your phase of no, is what we call it, with an apology or with some sort of tactical empathy. And we let it out slowly. We let it out in phases before we ultimately say no. We actually say no without saying no at least three times before we get to the word no. The first time that you are going to say no is, is simply, you know, we just, we just can't do that. Mm. You know, obviously this is important to you. I'm sorry. We just can't do that. Second phase of no is that just doesn't work for me. Third phase of no is how am I supposed to do that? And you may have to hit, how am I supposed to do that more than once? And what, what the, 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 how am I supposed to do that question 
discombobulates most people because now you are engaging both hemispheres of the brain at the same time. You're, you're engaging that emotional uh, right-hand portion of the brain and then that logical left-hand portion of the brain at the same time. And, and you're doing it in a fashion that now you're actually forcing tactical empathy back on you mm-hmm. because you're making them think. And they, they start actually negotiating with themselves. Yeah, how is he supposed to do that? Let me see if I can figure that out. And then they usually come up with the solution. Now, every now and again, you'll get that person that says, I don't know how you're supposed to do it, but if you want this deal, if you want this agreement, you better figure something out, which is, which is still cool because that tells you what it tells you you've pushed as far as you can on that particular issue, but keeping in the realm of subordinate and superior or, or, or boss or supervisor or, or leader, the phases of no are the easiest way to let them down easy. Preface it with tactical empathy. I'm sorry. I'm afraid. I appreciate what you're trying to do. And then that just doesn't work for us or for me or for the company before you ultimately have to say no. You rarely have to get to the word, actual word no if you're using the phases of no. But that is the last phase, actually saying the words no. On the other side of that coin, we have the rule of the three yeses. Can you talk about how you can use the rule of the three yeses to get affirmative commitment to truly do something? Yeah, so let me preface this by saying this is not like yes momentum or yesable propositions or mere agreement. Those are all salesy academic terms that we've heard since time immemorial. This is not the same thing. The rule of three is getting three yeses to the same thing in the same conversation to determine whether or not your agreement, your deal, your resolution is on solid ground. The first yes you get from anybody should be viewed as a counterfeit yes that needs to be tested. I don't care who you're dealing with. If it's a first time person or somebody you've been dealing with for years, consider every first yes that they give you as a counterfeit yes. So you're going to want to test it with a label, with a mirror or a paraphrase. An example would be, um, you and I are talking and we come to an agreement and you have agreed, um, I'm going to take this back to my team and I'm going to run it by them and we'll get back to you next week. That's your, that's my first yes from you. I'm going to consider that yes counterfeit and I'm going to go for the commitment. Yes. Now, or I'm just going to label what you just said. So it sounds like on Monday, you've got a meeting with your team members at that meeting, you're going to verbatim give them exactly what we discussed and agreed upon today. And that you'll let me know sometime subsequent to that, what the verdict is. That's, that's, that's more of a paraphrase that went on for a little bit, but that is me trying to get from counterfeit to confirmation. And then you give me a yes to that. I'm going to follow it up with another mirror label or paraphrase. Uh, 
So it sounds like sometime Monday night at the latest Tuesday morning, I'll have a response from you either in voicemail or email. If I get that third yes out of you, I feel a lot better about the agreement. The three yeses, the rule of three, when I get you to articulate that you are committed to the agreement, it's harder for you to back off of at that point. Because each time you say yes, it's tantamount to a public promise. And a public promise obligates you to remain consistent with that promise. And so there's less chance that you're not going to go, there's less chance of you going back to your people, screwing up the message, not conveying it properly, or otherwise not being my advocate in the room, uh, which is what I need from you. And so that's the, that's the value, those, that's the importance of the, of the rule of three. Now, it's the rule of three, but there is, uh, there, one of the negotiator personality types will promise you, promise you, promise you, and they have no intention on acting because they want to keep you happy in the moment. And so the, with the accommodator, you may have to test it more than three times. Mm. So if I've labeled you as an accommodator, I'm probably going to, you're probably going to get irritated with me with the amount of times that I confirm what you've told me because accommodators are notorious for making promises. They have no intention on keeping because they want to keep you happy in the moment. This stuff is so applicable to the insurance industry, uh, internally, externally, negotiating deals, making sales, dealing with employees. Derek, if, if we wanted to, uh, if, if uh, someone listening to this wanted to get access to your consulting services or have you come to one of their conferences, how would they best get access to you? Oh, simple. Info at blackswanltd.com. Somebody okay. is, man, is manning that email all of the time and they will direct your query to the appropriate section within the company, whether it's, you know, keynote, whether it's corporate training, whether it's individual coaching or whether it's uh, the, the wide array of online offerings uh, that we have. That's, that would probably be the easiest way. But, uh, you know, I would recommend anybody listening to this, start out with the free stuff, go to the website, dive into our, our, our free content mm -hmm. and see if that doesn't whet your appetite. And if it does hit us up at info at blackswanltd.com mm -hmm. and we'll get you switched and we'll get you situated. I also would totally recommend your book. Thank you. Ego, Ego authority failure. Uh, all the, everything we talked about today was really mentioned in the book as well. So um, relaunch is coming October of this year. We're going to relaunch it. Second edition, Clean, we're going to clean up some of the editing uh, problems that we have. And we've got some bonus material in there for parents this time around. Yeah. Well, Derek, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Um, super, super insightful stuff that I want to personally build habits out of. If you're ever in the Bay Area, you'll have to let me know. We're just north of San Francisco. Um, but we always end with five rapid fire questions that you can answer as short or as long as you'd like. Mm -hmm. So if you're ready, we can dive in. Let's do it. Okay. What is your favorite movie or TV show about hostage negotiation? Oh. Favorite movie or TV show 
about hostage negotiations. Um, Got a lot to choose from. Yeah. So um, my favorite was uh, six, six days. I think it was called six days in September. Okay. Um, it's a, it's a movie that was produced in the UK and it was a movie that was based on the April 1980 embassy takeover in London. And it's my favorite because they got a lot of what we do right. Wow. Um, the, the actual Iranian embassy siege is the, is the documentary. And mm. um, I've watched both of those. And the six days in September was, was the one that really highlighted what we do. And this, this was based on something that happened in 1980. Mm. And so I say that to say that um, the Brits got it right many, many, many years ago. The model that they um, held to when negotiating with these terrorists that took over the Iranian embassy in London uh, was cutting edge. And the tactics they used then are tactics that we still employ today. So that would probably, uh, that would probably be my favorite. Most of the other stuff that's come out of Hollywood is just, ugh. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to check it out. I haven't seen it. So are there any books beyond your own that you would recommend on the topics of negotiation and persuasion? Um, yeah, probably one that I, I really enjoyed and I enjoy it because the guy did it because it was intuitive, not because he was trained. And that is ride of a lifetime, Bob Iger, former chairman of Disney. And, you know, our foundational, um, the, the, the foundation upon which all of our skills are built is tactical empathy. And this guy was a tactical empathy wizard when it came to his rise through uh, the television industry and ultimately ending up as the head man in charge over, over Disney. And uh, it's just replete with examples of what it takes to subordinate yourself to the people that work for you in order to make their lives as easy as possible so that they can have the motivation to move your company forward. And for leaders to be able to look at their employees like that, uh, it's, it's, he, he's definitely an outlier and it's definitely something that I took comfort in and I found to be a great read because it's not something he was necessarily trained in. He just did it and he showed how effective it was in the corporate world. I'm a huge fan of that book as well. Did you have a favorite branch of law enforcement? What I did as a hostage negotiator. Now, I will tell you, that's an ancillary assignment. In other words, I'm not a, I was not a full-time hostage negotiator. I had another job. And for the, for the bulk of my career, I, I ran the criminal investigation section. And so the, my favorite was as a hostage negotiator. They, if, they, if I could have figured out a way for them to pay me to do that full-time, uh, I would have been a, a, happy, a happy camper. Um, mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, cops are A-types. Negotiators are A-types of the A-types. We, we, we're the people, us and the SWAT guys, are the people that they call when the police get in trouble. 
when the police get in trouble, they call us. And so, um, you know, my ego aside, that 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 puts some wind in your sails when you are viewed as the as the problem solver. They're calling you to solve the problem that they couldn't. And so that was my favorite assignment uh, in law enforcement, mm. uh, followed closely by my com- supervision and then command of the criminal investigation section. Mm. Are you speaking at any upcoming events that um, the audience should know about if they want to hear you live? Uh, we haven't. We haven't opened up our live events yet. Uh, we were planning on doing so in November of this year in Dallas. Uh, I think there's still some room available, but you know this Delta variant might mean that we wind up canceling or, or postponing that event. But right now, first or second week of November, we're planning on being in Dallas for one. Uh, there's going to be one one-day event and one two-day event that we're hosting. Um, so that would be, that would be the earliest. Other than that, it's a uh, keynotes for companies who are having, you know, uh, sales conferences. Very cool. Ironically, we are having a cyber sales Academy in Dallas on November 2nd and 3rd as well. So maybe we'll have to connect at some point there. Um, final question for you. Any exciting plans for the summer? Summer is over, bro. Um, for for San Francisco summer's just getting started the uh the weather is finally starting to warm up and so August September October is when are the months that we have to look forward to uh when it comes to a little warmth out here yeah I was there uh three years ago in September uh and I had no idea that a lot of the old architecture in San Francisco is minus air conditioning and yep. I found, found that out the hard way in September. Uh-huh. I thought it was going to be cool. And we, we cooked for the entire eight hours we were in that building. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, no, no exciting plans. I got away to the beach um, with, with the family, the entire family. That's the first time we've taken a family vacation in many, many years. Uh, so that was really cool this year. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to round it out sometime in September. My wife and I are mm-hmm. going to be traveling to um LA, San Diego, and, and Palm Springs. So that's that's pretty much it. Nice, nice. That sounds awesome. Well, Derek Gaunt, thank you so much for coming on. Look forward to staying in touch and connecting soon. I will talk to you later. Yeah, man. Thank you. Take care. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Prime Insurance. Prime Insurance thinks outside the limitations of standard insurance companies by providing innovative solutions for specialty risks. Prime is a proud leader in excess and surplus lines insurance, providing coverage for many who would otherwise be forced to go uninsured or self-insure their risk. Email info at primeis.com to start working with Prime today.